My career sucks. Sex just isn't the same. What's my purpose? Where did this fat come from? My relationship is killing me. I'll never be happy. My debt is piling up. I'll never find love. Why can't I be like other gay guys? Hey guys, it's time to get a grip, stop whining, make a bold move, and do something amazing with your 40-plus gay life. Let's get to the show with your tell-it-like-it-is host, Rick Clemens, who does his best to never act like a dick or a diva unless you act like one first. All right, 40-plus gay man, it's time to have a gay talk about, well, some interesting stuff that shows up for most of us, maybe not every one of these things, but as gay men, we kind of feel like we have to pull ourselves back or we dive into things because, hey, this is the only way through. Or maybe we become like uber, uber focused on success and everything. And the next thing we know, we are in some addictions or we're in some mental health space that isn't good for us. And then we allow those, well, interesting little relationships from our past to get in our way. And suddenly we're struggling, struggling, struggling. Well, today's guest is a guy that I met through some other work that I do. And then ironically, his PR person reached out to me and I'm like, uh, I already know him. And we've already <laughs> talked about him being on my podcast. His name is Tate Bartley, and he has a brand new book that just came out in September. Yes, just a few weeks ago. And I'm just going to say it, this bitch already sold out on Amazon the first round. So good for him. Congrats on that for sure. His book is called Sunday Dinners, Moonshine and Men, and it's a memoir, and it really explores a lot of stuff in his relationship with self and family and his own, you know, travels and travesties and, uh, you know, recoveries through addiction and stuff. Tate, I'm just looking so forward to this conversation because you and I have been talking about it for a while now, and here we are. So thanks, man, for being part of this and um, bringing, hopefully, like some really great stuff to guys who are like, man, I don't know. I just don't know if I can get through. So thanks for being here, buddy. Oh, you bet. Thank you for having me, Rick. I, I, I appreciate being here. I mean, it's it's a wonderful venue and for men over 40 who are gay and uh, like myself. So, um, oh, I thought you were 21. I mean, come <laughs> on. <laughs> I know. You know, well, <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, uh, exactly. It's it's the filter on the Zoom here, man. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> we we know how to adjust those really well, right? Exactly like, oh, right. Let, let, here, let's add some years back. Uh, you know, jeez, uh, I'm so glad I brought my avatar with me. So exactly, uh, <laughs> that always helps. So, so you're you've been very successful in life. I mean, you, you've you know you, you're an attorney. You've done a lot of different things, but you also well, you're a Southern boy. So let's go yeah. there, right? You're a good old Southern boy, growing up from the South and the Carolinas and stuff, and. This book is just so fascinating to me. First of all, I just love the title of it. You know, just just the title like is intriguing to me. You know, what was like, did you just wake up and like, I think I just need to write this damn book? Or was this something that was kind of under your skin for a while? I'm like, I want to write a book. Kind of give us the background of like how you came into being with this one and then why the focus that you had for it. Yeah, no, this book is is about and it centers on it's like a memoir of my relationship with my dad and my dad was this larger than life extremely charismatic you know hyper masculine kind of guy and his expectations of course were that i would be the same and uh, we had a very tumultuous relationship throughout most of my life and and the reason that's really important here is because in 2013, I, I I had to get away. I was just not in a good place. And I went to a beach house down in Galveston. And, and my dad had died the year before. 
And I've been in recovery for alcoholism and addiction for 24 years. And anyway, we come from a tradition in in the 12-step programs of doing a lot of writing to work through your feelings. So I just started writing about my dad. I just wanted to, there was a stickiness about it that that I couldn't shake with him. Mm. And so I wrote and then I dictated it. I gave it to the transcriptionist at work. And I said, why don't you transcribe this? I want to read it later and... So then I forgot about it. She gave uh-huh. it to me and I forgot about it. And then about three months later, she knocks on my door and she says, so are you going to have any more transcription for me? And I said, what do you mean? And she says, you know, your book. And I said, what right. book? You know about your dad. And I'm like, she goes, I want to know how it ends. And then I thought to myself, well, I don't know. Maybe I could make this a book. So it started out that way. Um, you know, I didn't wake up and say, damn it, I'm going to write a book. It just, I, I needed to work through some stuff and, you know, and I started writing a book at that point in time. And then when the pandemic hit, I finally had the time to really bear down. And, um, here we are Sunday dinners, moonshine Mm -hmm. and men. It's interesting when these things kind of hit, I remember kind of a similar process happened for me. I'm like, Oh, I really would like to write some of my memoir about coming out and all that sort of stuff. And then I'd set it aside. And then I got certified as a coach. I'm like, well, this could be a good way to like, you know, kind of do the thing I want to do. Right. And then I kind of like set it aside. And then one day, just really on a whim, I sat down and said, let's just start and see where it goes. Yeah. Of course, then once you get into it, it's like, okay, then your judgy stuff starts stepping up. And is it going to be good? And I finally started working with a book coach. And I just realized, you know, it is what it is. Whatever Mm -hmm. comes out of this is what's meant to be. And then I hit the wall, block wall of, okay, well, I'm about to kind of change my direction on what I do. And I wonder if I should even release this book because I'm still going to be that gay life coach coming out, coach everything. But there was a wider audience, as you know, I'm a speaker just like you. And I was going for that wider audience sort of, you know, reach. And I'm like, oh, if this comes out, then I'm going to get pigeonholed in and just being the gay guy, right? And it was just such a really interesting journey to let myself finally release into it. And and like you, there's probably stuff in the book that you're like, okay, well, I'm revealing some stuff. And then you you start questioning that. So what was some of the hardest parts of just like, once you like initially transcribed, then, hey, are you going to do any more? What was some of the hardest parts of like keeping it moving forward? Because I think that's always an interesting thing to ask authors. Yeah, for me, the hardest part was, you know, I said, I'm going to, I concluded, you know, I'm going to write this book. And then I pick it up and I put it down because I'd get busy. Uh, and, and, you know, that's my, my, my uh, go-to for not all the time is I'm just busy. I'm doing all this other stuff. How, right. how that's kind of the excuse. That's the, the negative guy in me is always saying, well, you're just too busy to do that. But I also got a book coach and and uh, she advised me on some things. And then I went and hid from my book coach for about three months. And when I came back, I sent her a manuscript of 658 pages. And uh, I'll never forget what she said. Her name's Deb. And Deb goes, you know, no one's going to read 658 pages uh, about someone they don't know. 
So, mm-hmm. hon, you need to, we need to talk about how we pared this thing down. And that's how we wound up with what we did. And she said, you know, the, the premise is, you know, my dad was an active alcoholic to the day he died. Mm-hmm. And given the, the 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 challenge of our chaotic relationship that we had, the only time we really liked each other and had a real relationship with Rick is when we were drinking buddies. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, when we weren't drinking together, you know, my resentments and my anger, my, da- my dad could be a violent guy. And a lot of that violence was directed toward my mom and sometimes towards us kids, not as much towards us. And, and, and life in our household was walking on eggshells all the time. And I resented it. I was angry at him for it. And, and, um, and I would get, and I was angry at my mom too, because my mom wanted to keep the peace. Her job was to keep the peace. So every time I wanted to bow up on dad and say, I want to tell him what an MF he is, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know how sensitive the ears are of your audience, but I just wanted to get in his face, but she would never let me, which would, which would make me mad at her. And Mm. so I say all that in that this book helped me start releasing some of that. Yeah. You know, I had been in recovery a lot of years when I started this book and certainly a lot of years, over 20 years by the time I'd reached the stage. And and Rick, you could have asked me 10 years ago and you could have said, so you've worked your 12 steps, you've done your writing, you've done your fifth step, you've done all the things that recoveries ask you to do. And I'd have told you, yeah, I've, I've worked out my resentments. I've forgiven my parents. I've, I've done all that stuff. But boy, I started digging into this book and, and and really reaching down inside myself and writing about these things. And I realized, Rick, I had not forgiven my dad. And uh, I still had a lot to work through. Now I know why I felt so sticky a year after he died, because I hadn't forgiven him yet. It was still pulling me down. And he was the single most impactful person in my life. So when that person, when you've not forgiven a person of such weight and bearing in your life, it'll make you feel sticky. It'll make you feel like something's not right. And that's what I experienced. You know, it's interesting, this forgiveness piece. (laughs) It is such a huge part of, shame and guilt and anger and all of this stuff right and i remember as i came out of the closet um and most people who've listened know i came out at 19 and i went back in the closet because of parental and religious pressure and all this sort of stuff i was living in the south myself so the lovely Mm -hmm. bible belt tennessee Mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff oh yeah it was definitely like i wasn't ready i'm actually blessed i feel blessed that i didn't come out at that time simply because i was very naive as a young man <clears throat> really hadn't had any sexual experiences either side of the spectrum and it was right as the aids epidemic was like unfolding so if i had finally if i'd been a rebel and come out i probably wouldn't be here today is my gut mm-hmm. feeling just because i felt like i just don't know you know um so it's an interesting thing to see as the anger and everything started to show up that I was relentless about letting anybody off the hook. Like, nope, mm-hmm. if you can't accept me, this is the way it is. And fuck you. And, you know, da, 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 da. until I realized not letting go and not forgiving how people were treating me just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Just didn't make sense until I realized 
this is hurting me more than it's hurting them. In fact, uh, I've shared this on both podcasts, but I, I always refer back to an episode Oprah was doing on Super Soul Sundays where I can't remember the actress she was talking to, but they were talking about forgiveness. And she brought up the whole thing about forgiveness is for you. You may think it's about the other person, but it's actually for you to release you to freedom. Doesn't mean when you forgive somebody, you have to let them back in. Right. Doesn't mean they have to be part of the equation, but um, it's it's definitely something that I have found very powerful when I'm able to like, okay, this makes sense. So, so as you started to work through this in the book and, and take it down from all those pages to what it yeah. was, I'm sure you must have gone through some of your own transformation of seeing it and feeling it and reliving it. Hell yeah. I mean, I, so, so, so much of this, the, the other thing I learned in this process is, is that I've spent a lot of time in my life, including my adult life, both as a drunk and a drug addict and as a sober man, looking back and not being present. And, and I didn't realize the extent of how the past kind of had a grip on me, Rick, until I started sorting through this and writing this. You know, I had the first draft was 658 pages of sequential chronological events. And, and, uh, and some, some vulnerability. But then I would go back and to the, to my coach and she'd, pull more out. Well, what about this? And what about that? And man, by the time we got done, I had really made myself vulnerable on a lot of levels. And, uh, you know, there's a saying in recovery and, uh, it, you know, if you hold a resentment, you know, which, which not forgiving someone is, is that's exactly what it is. It's a resentment that you hold against them for what they did to you or didn't do. If, if you hold, uh, you know, resentments like, you know, swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. That's an old saying that we use. And, 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 and I think that's why forgiveness can be so important. And, you know, I came from a place it's it's you know, you mentioned the South. And I know you had another guest on recently who, who was from the South, from North yep. Carolina, even. And man, mm -hmm. it is a conservative place. Yeah. And I grew up in. Uh, religious tradition that is a fundamentalist and conservative and their worldview is you are your purported sin. If you're an adulterer, if you committed adultery, you are an adulterer. If yep. you are uh, committed an act of homosexuality, you are a homosexual. That's what you are. And right. the good Lord gives and the good Lord gives us permission to shame you. Yep. And you should shame yourself. You should shame yourself mm -hmm. because that's a shameful act. And so when you come from that tradition and from that culture, like when I was growing up, you know, we're talking 70s and early 80s, there were no gay men in my world. You know, yep. I started my life in rural North Carolina and then we moved to Houston when I was 13, 12, 13 and into a working class neighborhood. And it, uh, uh, there were no out gay, gay people anywhere. So there was no one really in those days to say, hey, look at me. I'm a gay man and I'm a good guy. Uh, I, 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 and I can love and I can work and I can do all these things. And um, so the, that shame just works on you. Yes. Uh, well, it's such a power. It's a, such a powerful thing, you know. 
I mean, I grew up with, I did grow, I did grow up in a family where there was a, another gay man. My dad's oldest brother was gay and it was the dirty little family quote secrets. So to speak, Mm -hmm. even though he was very prevalent in our lives, he and his friend (laughs) were at all the family events. And, And my dad's family was a big family. I mean, seven kids, all the grandkids. I mean, when we get together, it was probably 50, 60, 70 people at a time for Christmas and Thanksgiving and all that sort of stuff. So it was big. And my uncle was, well, he and his partner lived in San Francisco and they owned two different restaurants. So they always brought amazing, fabulous food, right? And of course, Christmas, the gay uncles always brought amazing, fabulous presents, even back mm-hmm. in the 70s, right? But as soon as they would turn their backs and be somewhere else, all you got was the talk behind their back, snicker, snicker, oh, look, you know. And so my shame was built in that foundation that, oh my gosh, right? If this is, if this is what it means. And then when I did come out in college, it was really shameful to the point that I was strong. I knew it, but that shame was so strong that it put me back in. Yeah. But it put me back in, in a dual life. Cause I'm like, well, I know who I am. And from that moment forward, and this isn't anything I'm super proud of, but from that moment forward is how I learned to cheat and lie about who I really was, even into my marriage to my ex-wife and all that, because the shame was so prevalent. And I find it really interesting, Tate, that people are like, well, you should have just lived your life. I'm like, you don't get it. Mm -mm. When you come from those sort of circles and those circles exist today, I mean, we don't have to look very far around in our planet right now at like the hate and everything towards our community to really understand how deep this stuff really goes. So, um, yeah, but I find it, I find it interesting that in your world, there was no quote representation, but some people go that can't, I mean, he lived in Houston. I'm like, no, you don't get it. It was probably there, but it sure wasn't where it was seen and heard about. That's right. And that's right. And, you know, I think about before we came to Houston, the the summer, actually the summer we came to Houston, which was the summer of 77. So we're talking a long time ago. Uh, uh, the first time our, my dad and I were watching our, we had this little 13 inch black and white TV. We lived in a mobile home and uh, dad's sitting in his chair and I'm laying on the floor and we're looking at the CBS evening news. I'll never forget it. And they did a story on what is now the gay pride parade. I think it was called the gay freedom parade or, or something right. like that in those days, just this little snippet. Right. And you know, and you know how festive our brothers and sisters in the queer community can be and dressed up like, yep. you know, fairies and Queens and everything else. They were having a good time. And I'll never forget it. My dad's sitting in his chair and I'm laying beside him and he kicks me. You know, my family called me Bubba and that was my family nickname. And he kicks me. And he says, Hmm. Bubba, I better never. He didn't have to say anything more than that. I knew exactly what he meant. I better never see you act like that. You better never be one of those people. I knew what he meant. And, you know, I when we came to Houston, you know, I remember my first relationship with a guy, I was 16 years old and mm-hmm. he and I, and, and, you know, it was the summer of 1981 and we're living in Ronald Reagan's America at that yep. point in time. 
And Ronald Reagan was no ally yep. of our community. He, 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 and so, so that was just the world we lived in. Yep. Uh, and if you were gay, you were quickly condemned. So mm -hmm. when we, we've come a long way and I have to say that Harvey Milk was right. The whole come out, come out wherever you are is, is if you know a gay person, if you meet a gay person, if yep. you know they're there, it makes things so much easier. Well, and it helps you realize you're not alone. I mean, right. we, you know, I, I've said that so many times on this podcast and Life Uncloseted podcast and other people's podcasts that I've been privileged enough to be on and on panels and where I speak. But the thing is, I don't think anybody can realize that that just one little bit of connection mm -hmm. can be a huge difference. A lot of times it can be the difference between living and dying. I mean, some people, if they don't feel it, and I, and I do feel for people who live in rural, rural areas and they yeah. are the quote only person. So they think I'm sure there's people there. They're just not like, you know, all you have to do is get on apps and search, you know, get on grinder or scruff or any of those apps in some rural areas. <laughs> and you just know, it's like, well, they're all here, but there ain't no pictures. So that tells you the whole story right there. But um, so what is one of the things you feel like you, you learn most about yourself? bringing this book into being because I, I know for me i learned i think the forgiveness thing was one of the things i had to go back and continue to forgive myself yeah. i also learned the humility of admitting what an asshole i was mm. you know it was i mean i know it there were things i did that i'm not proud of that now that i can sit back and reflect and go man i'm damn lucky i didn't miss lose my kids over that not because i was mean to them or anything but right out the gate i met a guy and like three weeks later, I put my wife and my kids on one plane and I went out on another plane. And like, I'm going to spend Thanksgiving with him. And and the wound was bleeding and open on this whole thing, right? Yeah. And I was just like, it's about me. And then it actually was one of the lessons that taught me so much about that's just not a, being a good human. Yeah. You know, it's just not good. So what's something that maybe you have seen from yourself by going through this cathartic process of writing this book, man? I think there are two things. There are two big, other than 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 just like the the weight of resentment that I had against my father being lifted in mm. this. There were two other things that became glaringly clear to me, and one is the gratitude that I have. I have had so many angels in my life that have mm. helped me along the way, whether it was in recovery or with the coming out process, and you know, it's, it's just knowing you, you made a point, Rick, that just knowing one person, I had a relationship when I was 16 years old with, with a guy from another debate team. I was big in debate and competition and all that stuff in high school. And he was from our rival high school and he and I met and you, and you know how you learn, particularly in those days, in the late seventies, eighties, you have a look and the look means kind of, I'm attracted to you, but no, I'm not. If you're not gay kind of look, but you know, you, you you figure it out. And so he and I met and we had a, this lovely, beautiful relationship in the summer, you know, when I was 16. And then, he, you know, we broke it off because we felt too guilty about it. So guilty about it. Twelve years later, I still don't really know a whole lot of gay people. I'm 28 years old at this point. And, and he was also a lawyer. He went on to be a law, uh, lawyer. And I call him on the phone one day because I am just so sad and feel so broken that I hadn't had the courage to come out yet. 
And I just said, his name was Rob. And I said, Rob, if, can we go to dinner this weekend? And he said, sure. And when we sat down for dinner, I just looked at him and, and Rick, I didn't even say anything. I just started crying. Mm. And I remember he, he reached out his hand and he said, Tate, are you still struggling? And then we just got up, walked to his car, and he put his arm. He was the only person I knew that I could talk to. He put his arm around me and he says, you know, I know, you know, he had come out by that point in time and uh, was living, um, you know, with his friend and, and was living, you know, he wasn't advertising it, but he was certainly open to everyone who was important to him in his life. Right. And had it not been for that one connection that I had, I don't know what I was so sad that I'm not sure what I would have done. And and so the other thing that so that's why I say I am so grateful to these angels that have been in my life. That's one thing I pulled from the book. And the other thing was humility, which you touched upon this earlier. I looked at all the things I did mm -hmm. and the fact that I managed to. I had five major automobile accidents drunk and I didn't kill anybody, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And, and I didn't harm anybody and too bad. And, you know, it, it humbles you when you realize, you know, sort of the carnage, you, you know, you left in your wake yeah. and the, the fact that the world does not center around me and that, that 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 I'm really here to be of service to others. Yeah. Uh, and I pulled that out of the book too. Cause you know, I had to relive all that shit if if you don't mind the expression that yep, I yep. put I put myself and others through because I thought I owed everybody. If you're gonna read my book, I owed you the truth. Yep. And all the truth, not just part of it. So you know, I I'm I'm humble that I've lived this far and i'm humbled at what a wonderful life i have right now given what it could have been and i am grateful for it well i think that's the thing is the the gratitude for where you've been i <clears throat> i guess it's been well 2019 was when i had stroke number one and right after that stroke i was kind of like okay what the hell <laughs> you know but then there was this feeling of, hey, thank goodness it was minor. It didn't, you know, take me down or anything like that. But I actually had a thought in that moment, like, okay, if if it had, I pretty much have gotten through the worst of the stuff in life. And I'm really at peace with who I am. I think if I'd still been in the closet, I, you know, not that we know at any given time, you know, poof, any of us could go. But even then I was like, I'm really grateful that that I am where I am because I could have been still hiding in the closet, miserable, mm. you know, pretending to be somebody I really wasn't. And sometimes you just got to embrace that where you have gotten to and where you get to be is one of the greatest, most powerful things as a gift you've been given. Mm -hmm. And sometimes doing something like writing a book like this helps us really truly appreciate it, even though through the process we're digging up stuff and going through and reliving it all over again there's just a beauty to it that helps us see more clarity 
of wow, no matter what, I've actually been pretty darn lucky. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I would agree with that. You know, you know, in our early days, my my, my dad was was a larger than life and he was in many ways basically he was a flim flam man you know he was always chasing that next get rich skip uh get rich quick scheme yeah and i hate to break it but to the world but boy we never got rich and hate to break it today i never got rich mm-hmm. and it seems like we were we were falling in and out of just horrific dire economic straits all the time you know when yep. we i was in fifth grade they turned off the water they turned off the lights and we ran all when we ran out of food, it was me, my three younger sisters and my mom. And one of my younger sisters was an infant and dad just freaking disappeared. He just disappeared leaving yeah. us. And I, I, I think back to that. And I, and I think eventually we just had to call Ken people and say, come get us. He's just disappeared. Yep. yep. And they came and got us. And I, I, I think to myself, you know, I'm glad that happened in a way. Mm-hmm. It's it's a part of my DNA. And, and, and though I may be a little parsimonious sometimes because I never want to be homeless again or without water or right. electricity Absolutely. or anything else. I also can, you know, I, I talk about this a lot in my, when I speak to others, this idea of empathy. I think it's the biggest gift that, 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 hard times give you and that mm-hmm. is the ability to relate with others whenever they're sharing something with you and and these experiences that i had growing up uh allow me to understand what others are going through and and i think it's just it's it's hard to be complete if if we're not if we don't feel close to those around us, particularly to those in need, there's something mm-hmm. about someone in need and being of service to someone in need that it blasts us out of our own head. Cause right. I don't know about you, Rick, but man, when I'm thinking about myself, I can F myself up. Yep. No time. Absolutely. <laughs> if all Absolutely. I'm thinking about is me, I mean, and I think that's the beauty of when these moments come to life that okay so back like to that moment where i put my wife on one playing with the kids and i went and and here here is the real shitty thing about that we're in the same exact airport they're going they're flying to oakland i'm flying to no actually i take that back i think they were flying yes they were flying to sacramento because we'd already had the tickets and because of this whole blow up uh, it was kind of like, we don't even want to, you know, she didn't want to be with me. My parents didn't want to have anything to do with me, but then they didn't want me staying home. And I'm like, well, then fine. I'm going to go see the boyfriend or quote, what I thought was going to be the boyfriend for life. Right. In San Francisco. So I walked them down to their gate. They're going to Sacramento. I walked to my gate. I'm flying into Oakland. And it's just like, now when I sit back and think about that, it's like, gosh, this humiliation and all of this. But yet it helped me so solidify in my heart of hearts now that I, I care so much for my children that I never want to put them in a space where you're second best to anything in my life. Mm-hmm. But also to support them in a great way, but also realize you may be everything in my life, but there's also got to be room for me too. And I, it's one of the most valuable lessons I feel like I've really tried to work on with my children out of that whole experience. Yes, it was shitty times. I'm not going to say it wasn't, 
-hmm. but like own being yourself, which is a powerful thing for any of us, but also don't be so much yourself that you're taking everybody else and discarding them like, you know, a piece of trash. Mm -hmm. And in those moments is when I feel like I've learned the most about who I was at my core, which got lost. So much of that got lost in the hiding and living the double life. At the time that I finally did come out, and I think the reason that moment happened for me in London was it was the perfect storm, number one. Number two, this guy that I met helped reveal some of the soul essence of me that I had buried so deep inside that suddenly I'm like, oh, wow. In fact, when I speak about this on stage, there's a line I deliver in, in the talk about and that was the night there was no sex. I fell in love and I fell apart. And that's actually what happened. Mm -hmm. I was in a hotel room with this guy, which that was okay. Just do that. That's what we do. Right. But I didn't know what to do with it when, yeah, we cuddled and kissed and stuff, but there wasn't anything else. And suddenly I was awakened to, okay, so, well, wow, this is what this is. Right. Mm -hmm. But that essence of, okay, here we go. Kind of like, opened me up to see something I couldn't see and, and also scared the crap out of me because, you know, and I think these are those moments, like what you're recounting in your book, the moments of the addiction. And the only thing you and your dad had in common was, you know, quote, when we were drinking, you know, when you said that earlier, I had a moment because my dad and I don't, we're better. I mean, we're better now. He's 80 going on. He'll go be 81 next year. Don't have a whole lot in common. But one thing we always did have in common, and even though I hated it, hated it for all my passion, he was a contractor. The one thing we did pretty well together most of the time was when we were working on a job site. Because there was that like, we're just getting it done. Now, here's the interesting thing. That translated into how well my husband and I do any kind of home improvement projects. We're just like a well-oiled machine. And I think it's because I picked up my dad's ability to do this stuff. And I find that same synergy with my husband, not that I don't love my husband and don't get along with him, but there's mm -hmm. an interesting twist in there. Mm -hmm. When my dad and I at this stage do stuff like that, we're good. It's when we have time to just sit there and be with each other and in silence. It's like, we're both struggling to like, where do we find the common ground? You know, where, where do we settle into this? So, you know, I know it, that, that, that that's so true. And, and again, my, my dad, uh, you know, he was a, the, the first chapter of the book talks about, you know, he used to run moonshine mm -hmm. uh, right after college, uh, right after high school for him. He didn't go to college, but right after high school, he used to run moonshine. And, he, you know, he, he he loved telling stories about, you know, his moonshine running days and running from the law and this and that. And I, I be honest, I love telling stories too. We both sure. like that idea. So when we started drinking, then of course the stories and the BS and, and, uh, you know, it would flow between the two right. of us. Right. But you know, when the hangover hit, he was still the guy who hit my mom. So, but when we got to drinking again, there mm. we were, we were buddies again. So right. it's, it, 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 it was this circular thing. And my dad was, I didn't, you know, telling my dad that I was gay was one of the hardest things I ever did. And because uh, I because I never forgot the kick, you know, Bub, I better never when it's your dad that does that. It makes an impression. 
And I really struggled with coming out to him. I struggled with coming out to to everybody. I was late coming out. I was 28 before I started coming out. And um, oh, that you were a baby. I was 36. Yeah. So. Oh, geez, man. All right then. Okay. Well, so you know, for I actually, me, I actually have a client right now that I'm working with. He's not the oldest I've worked with, but he is 63. Oh wow. The oldest that I've worked with was 72. Okay. Well, come on, y'all. It's all right. It's okay. It's all right. It is okay. (laughs) It is. But yeah, it it is that that interesting space where it's like, it's such a big thing. And everybody listening to this, I mean, and you know, in, in in our 40 plus gay men's chats that we do once a month, this comes up quite a bit. Like, what do you, what is the pebble in the shoe that still exists? from that coming out experience, even if you had a great coming out experience, right? Because there's those moments, you know, that things are going to happen. Like, you know, I was, I was being cautious and within the hospital a few weeks ago, just to make sure that everything, the ticker was working everything the way it should. And even in those moments, yeah, this, my husband's here with me. Well, even saying those words, because when you say something like that, like when you're first checking in, especially in this day and age, it's like, you kind of look around your, over your shoulder, like, okay, is some crazy going to be there going, okay, yeah. not for long. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, so how did, how do you feel like all of this from poverty and lacking money and craziness with your dad, you and your dad's relationship, how do you feel like it made you not just a better man, but like a better gay man? I think that, 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 sort of the chaos of it all, the repression of it all. It did make me, uh, uh, I'd like to think anyway, that it made me a better gay man. And uh, mm. in, in that, and in, in for this, I, our, our community, our queer community, it is beautiful and it is wide and it is diverse in, in its many, many facets. And we, have so many people and uh, i know that i meet so many people that that have a story everybody has a story and everybody has that challenge that they're struggling with and i i gotta go back to this word again that that's that that and that is empathy that i mm-hmm. i really feel like that when 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 people share with me so often rick i get blasted back to my own experiences and those feelings run through me, like the fear of my dad finding out or the, 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 I remember my mom in tears when, she, you know, when we're allocating food for me and my four sisters yep. or, or the laugh of the man across the street when I would take my green, green, big green bucket over there. And I had a guy across the street and he'd let me run water into the big green bucket from the water faucet to to pour in the back of our toilet so we could flush them when dad left us. Wow. And I think about that and the decency of Mr. Wilson, who let me take all that water for yeah. all that time. And, and I, I'll never forget this big belly laugh he gave me. And I said, you know, we're having water problems at my house. And he just busted out laughing like, oh, no, not. I know, son. All right. <laughs> you know, God, I mean, our water had been cut off. We right. broke. <laughs> and 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 so I, I think that when others come through this, I was a lucky, lucky guy. Let me tell you, I'm lucky. I don't know that I ever truly came to grips with being gay until I got sober. And and my dad picked me up at the airport 
I went to Hazleton in Minnesota, Center City, Minnesota, and he picked me up to the airport. And he was just drunker than a shit house rat when he picked me up. Just bleary-eyed drunk. Wow. And I, this is my first day home from rehab, and I'm a nervous wreck. We drive back, and and I had lost everything at that point in time, right? My law practice, my home, and I was living with my mom and dad, and my father was a, a, a raging active alcoholic at the time, but I didn't have any choice. Right. And uh, when I got there, he begins excoriating my mom and my sister for going to an Al-Anon meeting, and my 28-year-old sister, who had just gotten married three months ago, reaches over she touches my knee and she says you need to come live with me yeah. and i went and i left my parents house and i went and i lived with my sister and my brother-in-law who a guy by the name of brian who another one of those angels he could have made me feel less than he could have caused yeah. a big fuss about here i am three months into this marriage and you're bringing your out of work drunk brother Yep. Just got out of rehab to our house. We're, but he never did that. And he never did anything but make me feel welcome and important. Mm. And so, you know, I think about that. I think yep. about how when I finally got the guts to leave my sister's house, my best friend from high school gave me a place to stay right by her she she owned the it was an upstairs downstairs duplex well she finished out the downstairs so i could have a safe place to go and three blocks from her house was the lambda center where it had round the clock meetings for our queer community folks who are in recovery for whatever that recovery may yeah, yeah, yeah. be so i just got lucky and it was in those rooms those queers of every stripe that started making me feel like a proud gay man. Once I got to know these people that I was afraid of mm -hmm. and that I had condemned for so long, even though I was one of them, Yep. once I got to know them, they gave me the power to accept me. Mm. And, and, and they gave me my power through their love and acceptance. And I just, and everyone, I've just been lucky that way. And so I, I like to think that I, I need to be present for others mm -hmm. who need that help. And there's a lot of ways you can be present, but the first way you can be present is just to listen with empathy and understanding. That's at least the first way I think. I agree. There's, it's such a beautiful place when you start to embrace that piece. Cause we're so quick to, as soon as somebody's done talking, they jump right in and say the next thing, right? Which means all you've been thinking about is what are you going to say next? And as a speaker, and you know, you've worked with me in that realm. One of the things I always try to teach speakers is give room for the breath, give room for the pause, because the human mind needs time to think about what was just brought up so that it can be taken in and be, be actually put into activation mode. Even if that means that maybe somebody's going to take it in because you pause and they're going to dwell on that. Well, guess what? For that person. That may be exactly what they need to dwell on and what you're talking about up on that stage or on this podcast. And it's one of the things I really try. I don't know that I've perfected it yet as a podcaster, but to give those moments, to let something sink in. I love what you just said, that those, those queer people are the people who gave me the power to accept me. What a gift. What a huge gift that is.
And it's interesting that you said about those people that I'd always looked at. I kind of had looked at that same lens. Like, I don't get these people. When I first came, finally came out, I did not get, I did not get the leather community whatsoever. I did not get like, I remember the first time I saw Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I'm like, that's blasphemy, you know, because here's my whole religious upbringing, like still being present. Right. And then I remember going to Dory Alley in San Francisco right before I came out. I was the straight guy going to Dory Alley with all my coworkers who were gay. And I was just so judgy, judgy, judgy about everything I was seeing. But then the other side of me was like, I'm so hot and horny turned on by everything I'm seeing too, you know? And I realized how much I had to transition through my own stuff to become more and more and more accepting. And, and it's not a done deal. There are still times I'm like, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And of course, as we age, we kind of get to that point too. Like, yeah. Can you just be who you are and be done with it already? Why do we need all this? But um, yeah. I love that you brought that piece up because I do think that is a true gift of when somebody helps you see yourself and gives you that power. That's when a lot of things begin to really settle in and be true to your direction and who you're really meant to be in the world. So. Well, Tate, I'm so excited that this is out there and that you got it in the way that you did and that you brought it to the world and you're so open and vulnerable about it. I think that's the beauty of this whole thing. So wishing you nothing but success, my friend. And I'm so glad you shared yourself with us today. And if anybody wants a copy of his book, I'm looking at the Amazon right now. There's four available, but that's going to be, this is going to air three weeks from now, but keep checking in on Amazon and wherever you can buy books. I know you'll be able to find it. And um, this is a gift I usually give to people who are authors. If somebody would like a copy of Tate's book, email me directly. You all know the rules. If you're going to email me directly and ask for a book, you can't have already gotten a book this year. Okay. That's just the way it is. So I keep track (laughs) of this. I know who's asking for them. And I would love to gift you one of Tate's books as my gift back for Tate, you being here and being on my um, podcast. I really appreciate you. And, and thank you for that. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I love the podcast and and I appreciate that. And there is a new uh, shipment uh, heading out, printing heading out. So there'll be plenty of books around everywhere. Awesome. Uh, and, and But I do, I appreciate it. And I appreciate what you do for our community and, and for and in all that you do in every realm of your life, Rick. Thank you, man. Thank you. I love, I love that. Like you, I love to be in that space of, okay, I'm here to serve. And I don't let that, hopefully don't let that go to my head too much, but um, I love being of service. So again, thank you, my friend, so much for being here and sharing of yourself today with my audience. Appreciate you. You bet. That's a wrap for 40 plus gay men, gay talk, where size doesn't matter. We drop our bullshit, get over our screwed up fears, make bold moves and live life without apologies. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at 40 plus gay men, gay talk, where the conversations continue.